Hi, I'm Debbie George Addis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about free speech and the tyranny of the offended. SMU's Dr. Ben Voth joins me in studio. Gerrymandering immigration and the elections. I cannot wait to tell you the story about Virginia. And partisan bickering is not the problem in America. And finally, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. You know, my little tagline at the start of the show always says how I love inspiring the American political conversation about all sorts of issues. And that's really what the show is kind of about today. In today's first five, I want to share with you just a few stories of things happening on America's campuses that are simply unbelievable. I called this segment Tyranny of the Offended because I realized years ago, back in the days, my husband and I practiced law at a major corporate law firm in San Diego. And the partnership was having some discussion about some issue, I don't even remember what it was, but one of the partners went off on this point that he was offended by the suggestion that the policy should change from X to Y or whatever it was, and went off on a litany of why he was offended. Well, pretty soon the entire discussion was whether or not he was justified to be offended, how we could help him not be offended, how can we people make him feel better, and we're done discussing the issue. And I realized then the power of claiming to be offended because everyone drops their arguments, the pros and cons, whatever the topic is, and turns to how can we help you feel better. This, my friends, is one way the American left wins arguments in this country, the endless determination to be offended. But these college stories I want to share with you one was out of Northwestern University. If you know anything about that, it's in Chicago. It has a premier journalism school. People actually rave about the quality of the journalism school. Recently, in Chicago at Northwestern, the Republican Club, which is amazing there is one, but the Republican Club invited a what was considered to be a controversial speaker, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions came to talk about, essentially, the Trump agenda. He just, the title was something like, you know, defending the Trump agenda, explaining the Trump agenda. So leftists on the campus organized. They made a big fuss while he was there. They carried signs, they yelled, they taunted, they actually, one of them described entering the back of the building while the speech was going on, attempting to disrupt his presentation to the college Republicans and whoever else may have wanted to hear what he had to say. But that's not really the controversy. The controversy was that the school newspaper in this school that prides itself on its journalism major, the school newspaper, this is again Northwestern University, ran a story about the protest. In preparation for that story, the students who were working for the paper used the school directory, Northwestern's directory, found kids' names who had signed up to be part of the protest, found their cell numbers, and text them say, hey, Joe, I see you're going to be at the protest against Attorney General Sessions. Could we interview you? And the kids said yes or no. So based on the kids answering, they interview these students who are at the protest trying to disrupt free speech. What happened afterward was a story ran describing the antics, belligerence, probably rule-breaking behavior by the protesters. And then one student who was named in the article who obviously received the text message and said, sure, sure, I'm happy to, I'll, I'll tell you. And so you know, had, he was pictured along with other students in the story and quoted. 
this is the part I want to get to about today's conversation. In the school newspaper, in this journalistically, you know, gifted program, the students at the Daily Northwestern printed an apology to the school community for having run the story, for having included this kid's name, who had given permission for his name to be used, who had answered a text that sure I'm happy to talk to you. So this kid complained and was and actually what was occurring in part was the kid was worried or embarrassed about um, the uh, possibility that Northwestern would punish him because actually I guess you know they probably wouldn't punish you if you just waved a sign or chanted you know and they were chanting pretty ugly things as you might imagine because they are leftists and they dislike Trump and Sessions but chanting ugly things this kid gets worried he's going to be punished by the school not for protesting, but for the behavior, which included, as I said, attempting to disrupt, getting into the building. They had to have that a police presence trying to hold these kids back from actually disrupting the entire session. So they they printed a protest, they printed a retraction, or not? They printed an apology. The journalist did one. They said they apologized for their photo covery of the event. They shouldn't have put pictures in the paper because maybe students would recognize other students. Maybe teachers wouldn't like these protesters. Maybe somebody wouldn't like it. They apologized for running pictures in a newspaper. They also apologized for the idea that they had used this system of reaching out to students, which was not doxing them, not finding their picture and tracking them down and lurking outside their rooms, contacting them via text say hey can we talk to you they apologized for doing that it was insensitive it was confrontational it was an invasion of privacy they actually said they also went on to explain their choice to remove the name of a protester because they have to protect him because northwestern is so ridiculous they might actually punish him for his conduct and they had a big family meeting of the newspaper uh they they talked about they were just so embarrassed and they were going to change their policies and work with the community and they humbly it was a groveling level article apologizing for covering the story. And this is a good segue into what we're going to be talking about today with our guests joining us in just a moment. We have college students who think in a journalism program that they should apologize for covering facts. Apologize for putting someone's name in the paper who agreed to be in the paper. We have students protesting who are outraged by the idea that former Attorney General Jeff Sessions came to campus to talk about why he supports Trump's policies. Instead of going to the talk, understanding what whatever it was, and I'm not nuts about Sessions myself, but whatever Sessions had to say, listening to him, asking questions, writing a letter to the editor, speaking to the community afterwards, holding a counter event, all of those activities were possible. But these young snowflakes cannot tolerate the idea that somebody else believes something they don't believe. That somebody else might defend something they can't defend. They're using the power of being offended. Instead of saying, I'm gonna protest later, I'm gonna show up, I'm gonna ask questions. Their, their notion of their right to stand up for what they think is true means if they're offended by the characterization of Trump's policies that they think they don't like, which is really what they're saying. They're offended by how those policies are characterized in the media. They don't even, if you, I can guarantee you if you press, they don't even understand the immigration problem at the border, but that was one of the examples. They think because they're offended, they get to protest, they get to disrupt, they get to remain anonymous, they get to hide in the corner, they get to scold the paper for running their names, 
But the one thing they don't have to do is ever understand the issues. They simply have to say, I'm offended and all the world, at least in academia, bows down. And that, my friends, is today's first five. As I mentioned at the start of the show, we have a guest joining us in the studio. So happy is here today. We have an SMU professor, Dr. Benjamin. Do you like Benjamin or Ben? Ben's good. I love that name, Ben. Great name. <laughs> ben Voth. He is actually a professor at SMU, and he is the director of debate and speech. And one reason I wanted to have him is he has some kind of unique perspectives about how to get past this, this just... Um, blanketing of American academia with left-wing views. It's really kind of indoctrination by the left of our American college campuses. And how do we get past that using his actual very, his skill of teaching students and helping them practice these skills of debate and speech. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Debbie. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for being here. Okay, so we're going to start with you had a story, you had an article in American Thinker. Actually, you've had many articles in American Thinker. Mm -hmm. You had an article in American Thinker I thought was a great kind of kickoff story, which was the article was called, How Can We Fix Debate in America? Mm -hmm. You had a story, I just have to tell you, have you tell this story about your debate team from SMU going to debate competition to discuss healthcare policy. And I know because we talked about it before you went on air, you know what I'm talking about. Can you just tell that story? Yeah, it's incredible. And it only happened a year ago right here in Dallas at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, we were debating a team from New York. The actual topic for the year was the United States should adopt national health insurance. We were pretty surprised when the opposing team came in on the affirmative with that resolution. And their enactment of that resolution was queer people should not go to the doctor. Now, if you stop and think about that, that doesn't make any sense. If anything, yeah. it's probably anti-topical. It's not consistent with the resolution. It was also full of profanity and all kinds of F-bombs and, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, and, it, and these things are read actually pretty rapidly in college debate rounds. But it was very antithetical to the critical thinking process. So uh, I had two young female debaters who got up. They were novices. It was their first policy debate tournament a year ago. And they ran some arguments about how you shouldn't use this kind of speech in round. It's not appropriate. It's demeaning and this kind of thing. Well, when this young woman finished her first negative speech against them, uh, this person, again, who refused to identify their sex or gender, said, my question to you is, do you have to have a vagina to be a woman? And my female debater, who had never heard such kind of question before, just turned like beet red. She stared straight ahead for about 20 seconds. And then after about 20 seconds of silence, she said, we don't take a position on that. And we ended up incredibly losing that debate. I listened to the oral critique by the judge. The judge, frankly, looked like they were kind of in a hostage situation. It kind of looked like Stockholm Syndrome. We got <laughs> higher speaker points, but we were given the loss. And that team that we lost to went on to win the entire tournament here in Dallas. And that kind of tactical... Uh, kind of what I refer to sometimes in my writing, this indignation group who takes offense in the way that you were talking about earlier, uh, they manipulate the rhetorical and argument processes to a point where the rest of us basically cannot speak. We can only obey their commands and we just listen. And they tell us how hurt they are and how the only way their hurt can be resolved is if we form a political alliance with them. So 
that happened a year ago. There are other stories where I've had students who've been told that they should commit suicide in the debate round because they're so offensive. I mean, and that happened in 2015. There, there's a lot of things going on in the highest levels of college activity that are outrageous. And I, I think go beyond even liberal. I mean, we're talking about radical, what I term Jacobin activities that are designed to intimidate and get us to all forfeit our civil rights. That, that's an astounding story. I want to be clear about something. This is an actual formal debate process that was schools are part of some debate team or debate organization. And the topic really was essentially whether or not we should have nationalized health care. Right, right. And that's a very typical, and it's a <laughs> national topic. Dozens of universities are involved in this. And yes. And so I, I, I'm kind of flabbergasted. But what I think is amazing, though, given what you just described is, so there are judges who are supposed to be aware of the quality of debate, debating, uh, using appropriate tactics when you are taking a particular side. So it sounds like they didn't really care that this school from New York, University from New York, never answered the question. They instead talked about uh, whether queer people should go to the doctor. And, and that didn't seem right. to bother this judge. How and could you, that be? And you've touched on the heart of the problem. The judges are going along with this. And in fact, um, there's a judge preference system in college debate that sort of allows the teams to sort of pick their judges. And if you want to judge, if you want to be part of this process, you better toe these political lines or you're going to find yourself struck. That's the term that they use. You're going to be excluded from the judging process. And it's sort of ironic because I'm not sure even a lot of judges really want to judge these events because they're sort of spectacularly angry and intimidating um, and they involve an, usually an oral component where you have to de defend why you made the decision and that's why I said this, this judge looked like a hostage um, <laughs> but we don't have I would say regular public citizens judging debates in that particular format that I'm describing of policy debate and that's a big part of the problem and why we are where we are here 15 or 20 later, years later into the process of what I'm describing. And in the article, I do talk about there's some reforms that I'm trying to bring, but we have a serious problem. These are the people who are going to be attorneys. About 60% of these debaters are going to go on to be attorneys, go to law school. And this process is then initiated at this collegiate level. And they, they are very effective verbal bullies, and they can pretty much take out anyone in terms of some discrimination tactic that they derive from the way you talk or the way you dress or even the way you respond to any utterance they make. It is simply flabbergasting. So this, at least you could say, well, it's, it's a relatively small problem. This is college debate. Okay, don't major in debate. But it's also your communications professor is learning to communicate. And one of the central things that we used to say in kind of Western civilization was you go to college, you get your advanced education because you want to learn about the robust debate of ideas, robust exchange of ideas, to listen to other people. The entire notion of having a meaningful debate on any topic, whatever the topic is and whatever many reasonable sides there are, is lost if you can win a debate about a topic by never talking about it, by simply shutting down. And that really is being played out in America on in the political conversation around the country and so many issues, whether it is border security and support for the wall or not for the wall. So you're a xenophobic person who hates people who don't look like you. And pretty soon you're over here talking about whether or not you're really xenophobic and claiming you're not instead of how do we get adequate border security? I mean, so right. it, it carries, it has so many implications. But back to college campuses, so this communication skill that we see needed, you wrote, and I've forgotten, someplace you wrote where you were talking about how we really have a, an abundance of professors in colleges who are left wing, and so 
this this robust debate of ideas is shut down in many, many aspects of college campuses. Can you just talk about that? Yes, and so the field of debate is located primarily in a field of communication, and there are studies about the problem of what we're talking about, about the professors themselves and things like that, and there was an NAS study done in 2018, National Academy of Scholars group, and what they looked at was the top 40 universities in America, and they looked at uh, the faculty ranks and their their political registrations, and, and we all know that it's very one-sided. In fact, in every single discipline they looked in, there was not a, a single discipline where there was a preponderance of Republicans. Every single discipline had a preponderance of Democrats registered on the top 40 university faculties. But what I think is really shocking, it goes beyond bias and into propaganda, is that the ratios, like say in engineering, the ratio is like about 1.4 to 1. That's almost a normal ratio. That yeah. would almost be balanced. But from there, like in political science, it would be about eight to one. And there, I think you've got bias. You've got a problem where you've got eight Democrat faculty and one Republican faculty. But going further into the humanities and the social sciences, you're getting into ratios of 20 to one. And then the worst discipline in America, according to the study, was communication. My field, my PhD, it was 108 to zero. It was one of two disciplines where they could not find a single registered Republican on the faculty roster. And so at that point, you're not having even bias, you're having a total propaganda situation where people don't know what what other people are saying. It is, you know, I, I love you drawing that distinction because liberal bias, people say, oh, well, it's been that way for a long time. Colleges are liberal, academia is liberal, journalism is liberal, but it's really crossed the line. Uh, I've been using the word indoctrination. If you go to college and no one you ever meet on college campus even presents, if you're a student and no professor presents the more conservative view or even a, a mainstream view and all you hear is left-wingism you have no choice but to emerge thinking that is what the world is like this is what informed people think and these people back to your point about what these communication students do when they leave campus this is how they see the world you know I, I, I do in some ways fear for their ability to function in life because you go into many workplaces and you can't just steamroll people but if you go into law, you go into politics, even worse, you go into commentating, uh, being a pundit, you're just, you're not aware of, and you're not able to defend your views, you just think you accomplish your goal of suppressing the other people from speaking. Right. Uh, right? Yeah, that's right. It's yeah, very alarming. Okay, so so what do we do about this? You mentioned you had one solution in mind about communication. One of the things you wrote about communications schools. Can you what's that one yeah, solution? Yeah, I would love to see the emergence of what I would call freedom schools. That's the term I'm using. And what that would do is that we actually would try to have balanced faculty. We would have uh, you know Democrats and Republicans and different political viewpoints, and that would be clear from the outset in terms of the design of it. Then there would also be within the curriculum. Kind of a debate across the curriculum we actually would like on something like global warming we would actually debate both sides of it instead of acting like one side is pathological and <laughs> lying yeah. Yeah. And, and we would try to get you know into even like in civil rights issue and race questions there's a lot of things that people don't know I, I wrote a book about James Farmer Jr. he was actually very favorable to Republicans and worked in the Nixon administration um, there are people who are on the right on questions of race that we never hear about because of the way uh, education is set up. And I think in a freedom school, we would have a true broad spectrum of viewpoints, which is definitely just basically shut down on college campuses. Through the process of being a graduate student and getting your PhD, 
those various viewpoints are being snuffed out before they even get to the school. And so I would like to see communication freedom schools at every campus, even like at my own campus at SMU, but at campuses across the United States, where we actually would return to critical thinking and argumentation and things like that. So how do you make that? I love the idea. I love that. It is a it's paradigm shifting for the schools, communication schools. So do you have to get some entity on board with you to push this? I or? think it's probably going to have to be, you know, a big donor that catches this vision and agrees. Like, you know, it's going to cost probably $30 million to set up a school of this type at a major university. Okay. And so then hopefully like the dean of that school would appoint faculty members that really would carry out this mission and it would be a serious mission of the school but most universities have internal schools within them like a school of journalism like at northwestern but we need schools that are dedicated within the university's broader structure to like we're going to make sure critical thinking and argument happen because it's, it's not only not happening it's being deliberately stifled and shut down it absolutely is. It absolutely is. Um, I want to get to the books you've written, too. And uh, I, there is one you uh, brought me a copy, which is so nice. I get messed up in the camera. Wait, okay, am I using this, this camera? Okay. It is Social Fragmentation and the Decline of American Democracy, the End of the Social Contract by our guests here today, Benjamin Voth and Robert E. Denton, Jr. Is that holding? Okay. Very cool book. I really encourage you to, to read these kind of things. I was gonna make a joke about the title. Mm -hmm. Okay, you gotta be a little bit serious-minded. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can you say the name of the title again? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my colleague uh, Robert Denton at Virginia Tech, he wrote the title, it's kind of complicated, but it gets into like, you know, we're being torn apart and that's kind of what's on the cover there. And one of the things that's tearing us apart is collegiate education. It's making it so we can't even talk to each other. Even your show, Can We Talk? Maybe not. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. I know. I know. It's one of the things I say so often in all my public speaking and in the shows I do is there is is the history of America. It's how America got started back in the time before we had America. We were just colonies. Uh, we were a colony of England. We had people sitting around in churches and town squares and their neighborhood, uh, you know, churches talking to each other about the idea do you think we should have a right to liberty? Do you think we have a right to stand up against King George? Does in, do individuals have an inherent right to liberty? They had those conversations and they didn't all agree. I mean, families disagreed, you had robust arguments, but we finally got around to creating our country because we had people willing to say, yes, it matters, individual liberty matters. We have, and what became the declarations beginning that we have rights from God simply because we were born. These are self-evident rights. These kinds of ideas came out of robust conversation. America was born out of robust political debate. We used to send kids to colleges thinking, well, good, the all points of view, not just the ones their parents taught them. But this really has, and I'll turn back to Dr. Voth, a stifling effect on America. And we talked about this a little bit, uh, I don't know, in an email ahead of time, but you know, the argument that if people go to college, young people go to college and they have political science courses and uh, social science courses and all they learn is the left-wing view of everything, which in, is extremely anti-American, mm -hmm. characterizing America as Western imperialists and right. uh, denigrating every aspect of American goodness and culture and generosity. They leave college unaware of truth and unable to even recognize the goodness of America. And you said in particular, you thought it has some impact. We just had veterans say yesterday, but the impact their perception of military has coming out of colleges. Yeah, I, I mean, I really am alarmed about how American college students think about the U.S. military. And, you know, we had Veterans Day yesterday. Uh, and I was even thinking about like the 
the killing that happened 10 years ago at Fort Hood with Hazan Nadal and sort of his portrayal as if he was a victim and yet uh, the soldiers that were shot and killed at Fort Hood, they did not even receive combat pay. They were treated as workplace violence. Um, I've watched a lot of public debates with college students. I, in Ohio, I watched uh, some college students in 2005 during the Iraq War refer to their fellow ROTC members who were in the audience as murderers on scholarship. And I was really moved that the ROTC female commander stood up and, and in the public debate she said, I'm not allowed by my military code of conduct to tell you all what to think about the Iraq war, but I would like you to know that myself and my fellow cadets are ready to carry out whatever your wishes are at the risk of our own lives. And, you know, wow. I mean, that really made me tear up as a moderator. But we, what you were just saying, if I were to say there's one pathological thought that's being instilled in American college students, it is a contempt for America. It is the idea that America is a bad place, a bad country with bad values. And the military actually protects those good values and they're not malicious, they're not imperialist, colonialist, et cetera, all these little buzzwords that are dropped in their head in college. And it's really, really very sad. Oh, it's sad and it's dangerous because it causes people to vote for people who are arguing against America's goodness. Some of the things people don't grasp in college because we don't teach it is, for example, the primary importance of the Constitution. It's, it's as they say, it's like the like a, a, a massive bridge has structures to hold it up. It's a structure that holds up America's freedom, that the separation of powers. But they are, uh, you know, the Constitution isn't taught. Um, the history of America and its goodness in the world, not perfect, but America's history in the world isn't taught. So students leave, really leave college not appreciating what they have and very willing to embrace ideas such as socialism, which will destroy America, but they don't know that because that's what they're taught in college. So t tell me how we're gonna fix all this. You're, you're here, you're, you're a professor, can you get, how are we gonna fix yeah. all of it? Well, I will say one of the great groups I work with for now six years and actually started at the Bush Institute is the Calvin Coolidge Foundation. And yeah. they are actually really dedicated uh, to this Coolidge debate format. And I am actually the Calvin Coolidge debate fellow and we are sort of rebuilding debate in America from the ground up with high school uh, students. And we've had a Coolidge Cup now for uh, five or six years and students can win that. And we have regular public citizens judging those debates, which I think is really critical. And it has an open-minded and a topical approach and things like that. I mean, I think the other thing is that we just have got to, as trustees of these universities, take serious charge of what's going on here. This is to me, again, it's gone beyond liberal. I, I, I always say liberalism went out the door in the 90s. We're dealing with a very radical, my term is Jacobin intellectual culture that is aimed at suppressing in exactly the way you described on the Northwestern campus where, you know, Antifa is mimicking the Klan in terms of a dem demand for anonymity to attack the rights right. of their fellow Americans. And so when you talk about, and, and I do, I do an opening lecture at SMU where I, I just focus on the First Amendment because I can't teach them the whole Constitution. But I'm like, look at this First Amendment. And I talk about freedom of press. But if Northwestern's journalism school is teaching the forfeiture of the freedom of press, then what hope do we all have? I always tell the students, like, those five freedoms, freedom of religion, speech, assembly, petition, 
all those things are like the five fingers on your hand and you've got to be able to grip your rights as an American through those. And if they don't know what those are or what they mean, then we can't maintain a civil and free society. And so I do, every first lecture is about the First Amendment. I say, look, these are the most important things in the First Amendment. And they are, and some of them laugh, but nobody ever challenges this. This is what makes America the greatest country in the world. I say that every first day of lecture to try to rebuild what is being dismantled on college campuses. And it's been going on for years. It sure has. Again, the name of the organization, the Calvin Coolidge Debate what, what is, is there a, it's a, a URL? It's the Calvin, uh, yeah, you, uh, I don't have the URL with me, but if you look up the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, they're in Plymouth Notch, Vermont. They're, uh, you can Google them. They're, they're very available and things like that. I just had a, a chat with the group this morning. They are doing a fantastic job of building debate in the right way, and it's something that, yeah, people can donate to and, and even participate in. We, uh, Calvin Coolidge is the only American president born on the 4th of July, so we oh, celebrate know that. his okay. birthday by having a national championship on the 4th of July. And I would invite your listeners like to consider coming up to Plymouth Notch, Vermont. It's an incredible slice of Americana. If you really want to be inspired by what this country is about, it is something that is unlike any other 4th of July experience I've had. And it culminates in some high school students debating about immigration or trade policy or all kinds of things. And it's done in a way that makes you walk away thinking, wow, I feel hopeful about the future because these young people understand. And it's not this sort of reactionary thing where Everyone's lost in a cynical spiral of, I hate myself, I hate my country, I hate the culture we live in, and the most bitter person walks away with an award. That's not what we should be rewarding. The Coolidge Cup is something really for the last five years been very inspiring to me. And if you come up to Plymouth Notch, I, I'd love to have you come up there and judge. I think you would be the perfect kind oh, of judge for us. Oh, I would so us. eat that up. Yes, we. I would love that. We are actually, uh, July 4th we, uh, is like my favorite holiday. I just, I just try to talk about everything great about America around July 4th, so I will keep that in mind. You should. Um, one other thing I was going to mention, um, actually two other things. One is the other books you've written. I want to be sure to mention to our listeners. One's called The Rhetoric of Genocide, Death as a Text. Do you want to say a couple words about that book? And these are available on Amazon because I checked. Right. That book really explains how America's unique role in the world is actually creating the conditions for ending genocide in the 21st century. Our armed forces, you know, war actually does do some good things. And that, it, that book talks about that. And then you mentioned James Farmer. And I had not, I will, this is, I will say, truthfully, I'd never heard of the guy until today, until I get ready for our show. But James Farmer Jr., the great debater, you just talk a little bit about him as wrapping up your your what your books are all about right and james farmer jr his nickname is the great debater i do think he is a model for kind of our way out he was actually the architect of the american civil rights movement and yet almost nobody knows about him he's one of yeah. the big four he's actually the man who trained martin luther king in the nonviolent civil disobedience sit-in tactics beginning like in 1942 in chicago wow. but nobody knows about him he was born here in texas and he was a very bipartisan figure he ran as a republican for congress in 1968 he served in well. the Nixon administration. But see, that by, and he said African Americans should not be locked into just one party or the other. Well, today that's, that's just unheard of. We, we think of African Americans being in only one political party. But James Farmer, his life and biography is a great model for us today, coming out of a more turbulent period of the 1960s. I would say 1968 was even worse than what we're living in right now. But his life and example through debate can be a model for us. He was a, he wanted his, a big opponent with Malcolm X. And a lot of people don't know this, but it was James Farmer moderating Malcolm X through argument that led to Malcolm X being assassinated in 1965. 
people invoke Whoa. Malcolm X thinking like, oh, I want to be a militant. You don't understand. Malcolm X was trying to get out of that militant movement. I did, yeah. That's what yeah. led to his assassination. A key factor in that was James Farmer saying, look, being militant will not improve the human condition. Being cynical and pessimist about the American condition will not improve the condition of blacks. And that is so important. And I pointed out in my writing that if we don't get out of this Afro-pessimist paradigm, we get to incidents like what happened here in Dallas where the five Dallas police officers were killed. Yep. That happens because Micah Johnson was indoctrinated in hatred of America that we're talking about on this show. So James Farmer, if you read that book, you'll really be inspired and realize that right here in Texas is an incredible story of hope and a man who <clears throat> overcame segregation through a positive viewpoint, a constitutional approach, a nonviolent approach to problems that, that we can't fix even today. I love that. I am actually going to get that book. I have you one. I'm going to get that book about James Farmer. And in closing out an interview, I was just asking you, I don't know if you follow Candace Owens at all. Oh, yes. I think she's a very important thinker. Oh, yeah, she is. She's fabulous. Well, Candace Owens had her Blexit rally. I We've talked in this show. We've had her in this show. We talked in this show about her Dallas rally, which I got to go to. So much fun. She just did one in Atlanta, and she's just this beautiful, young, and she's not a, you know, she didn't plan her whole life to be a political person. It just kind of through her speaking her mind and using her own thinking, watching what's happening in the country, she became a, a just a really a signature figure on the American right and the conservatism, basically t speaking to black America, saying, you know what, folks, what exactly is it you think that voting Democrat and voting for big government has actually done for you? So her movement, Blexit, Black and Latina exit from the Democrat Party. She holds Blexit rallies around the country. She just had one in Atlanta. And I saw that uh, President Trump spoke there, which mm -hmm. had to just, I mean, I, I just love her and her husband. She's married to that George Farm Farmer guy who mm -hmm. is from England, who was a leader in the British, the Brexit so Brexit, Mary Blexit, kind of fun. Anyway, but Brexit was, he's a big leader over there. And he they have that same mindset that just says we get to stand up for freedom and we're, and we're going to speak the truth regardless of what's politically correct. In Brexit, he's talking about we're going to get out of the European Union because it's hurting your uh, individual states, including the UK. And Candace Owens just saying, you got to seek truth and you have to speak truth and you don't get kowtowed by people telling you because your skin is black, you have to think this and not that. She's saying, really, just think for yourselves and look at the facts. So on that note, this was too much fun. We're going to have to do this again. Yes. Really I'd love fun. to come back. Yeah. Thank you so very much for joining oh, me today. You're welcome. You did a great job. I enjoyed it. Great to have you. I'm going to turn to two other quick stories, my very fine friends. One is gerrymandering immigration and the elections. I just want to share this quick story with you. So in Dallas uh, last week, Governor Scott Walker came here. He is heading up the National Republican Redistricting Trust. I got to introduce him and talk to him a little bit at this event. Short story is he's in charge of raising money for the Republican Party to work on redistricting so that because the Constitution has, we have our census every 10 years, and so how the districts are drawn will greatly determine, the, the congressional districts will greatly determine the outcome of elections. So he is working on the National Redistricting Trust Republican side. He, as you likely know, we actually talked about in the show, we had a Supreme Court opinion in June of this year that essentially said gerrymandering is not, which is a correct decision constitutionally, gerrymandering is not the province of the federal courts. So 
Supreme Court's out of it, and gerrymandering is now in the 50 states. And the endless effort of the American left, of course, is to draw districts that are, they hope and assume, are going to be majority-minority. They're trying to draw districts. They claim to be fair. What they're actually trying to do is work on drawing districts to bring about a Democrat majority. But when I learn and listen to Governor Walker, I want to urge you to go and look at their website. The way the left does everything is through relentless, unending, determined mission, never stop, never pause, march forward, we will push our way. So one way the left is doing this in this particular issue is by going to court. So the Democrats are using the tactic of eating up all the resources Republicans have, hiring lawyers to defend themselves in the district maps that have been drawn. We, so what you just saw, as you, we talked about last week, the uh, Virginia, the state of Virginia, for the first time in a long time, went total Democrat, governor, Senate, and House. They have different names for it, but the two, lower, the two houses of their, of their representatives. And there was a headline in, uh, on Wall Street Journal, Kim Strassel had an article, um, Eric Holder Takes Virginia. I want to urge you to read that because it's too much data to pile on you. But here's her point. Eric Holder... The moment that Trump won in 2016 went, and he is the counterpart, by the way, to Governor Scott Walker, the former Wisconsin governor running the Republican side. Eric Holder, the DA for Obama, is running the Democrat side. He has been on a mission to attack states where he thinks he can be successful in bringing about a majority uh, of the of Democrat Party in the governance of the various states. So when we get to redrawing redistricting lines, the Democrats will be in charge. This is what happened in Virginia. It was not a fluke. There were two factors I want to mention. One is the Democrats poured money into states where they saw they were close enough to possibly tip the majority. Many people in America focus on their congressmen, their U.S. congressmen, who's running, and that matters too. But Eric Holder's point was he's going to get into the states and look at all these different states and figure out how to get a Democrat majority in the state house because that Democrat majority will then write the uh, redistricting maps. So he's on. He won Virginia. This is Eric Holder's win. It's not because the liberal policies of the left are suddenly more popular. It's because they did strategically spent money. And the second factor is the impact of immigration would simply blow your mind. Immigration, I've been, and many conservatives have been saying this for years, the left is not pro-immigration. The left is not open to the idea of, of an open border. The left is not all about sanctuary cities because of kind-heartedness. It's not generosity. It's not niceness. It is a shrewd political calculation. They will eventually get enough people brought into this country, protected while being here, And eventually, there will be a Democrat majority in the U.S. House, U.S. Senate, and a Democrat president, and they will make all those people citizens. They are creating a permanent Democrat majority voting base. This is the mission of Democrat immigration policy, nothing less. Mark my words. So back to what Eric Holder did in Virginia, which you don't, it's not a border state, so it doesn't maybe occur to you, but in Virginia, there's a massive shift over the last three decades in the percentage of people living in congressional districts who are foreign born. I am not this moment talking about people illegally voting. It's another issue. I'm talking about people who came to America over the last two or three decades, became citizens, so they have the right to vote or have some of the legal status, they have the right to vote. But foreign born Americans vote overwhelmingly Democrat. 
This is not a this is a fact not lost on Eric Holder and the Democrats. The reason in part is because they have been more willing to be recipients of welfare programs of various kinds. So the Democrats say, we're the ones, we're going to help you. The Democrats' sympathy on sanctuary states, the Democrat protection of the um, anchor baby policies, which need to be challenged in the Supreme Court. Democrat messaging about being pro-immigrant results in immigrants coming to America and voting for uh, Demo- the Democrat Party more or less two to one and sometimes more than two to one. So understanding that the way the left functions is not simply, it's not what they say it is, it's not what they claim it is, it's not what they lay out their policies. The mission is to create a permanent majority in the Democrat voting base. Eric Holder, um, he had demographic efforts, he had focus efforts, so this is what the left is doing. Uh, moving demo- uh, jurisdictions demographically, focusing money on districts to eventually flip the state houses, which they did in Virginia. He's got 11 more states on his list. Before the 2020 elections, Eric Holder thinks there are 11 more states he can flip. Litigation, which is costing, uh, and it costs them, them money too, but it costs us money because on the Republican side, we don't do this. We don't we don't fight with litigation like the left fights with litigation. Have the Supreme Court decision, which actually, while constitutionally correct, in my opinion, meaning that the federal courts and the Supreme Court really does not have jurisdiction to get in the middle of gerrymandering, it has made the battle now a battle around all 50 states, the battleground on gerrymanders in the 50 states. Um, and then you have this the uh, endless effort of the left to dissect groups into various kinds where we need to work, the, the conservative side needs to work, is in suburban America. We have suburban America as a huge issue where we are losing suburbia, frankly, even suburban women. And a lot, of course, the left critiquing says, well, it's all because President Trump is so bad. I think the truth is that we need to be focusing specifically and absolutely on the suburban vote and the women's vote uh, because the left is relentlessly pursuing this notion of having the they want to have the uh, majority in the state legislatures by 2020 as many as they can drawing the district maps in a way that will cause them to uh, both win those have favorable lines drawn but more more so than that really end up with a um really end up with a uh, majority where they're going to be just uh, we won't be able to defeat it It'll take decades and decades and decades to defeat it last quick story for today very last quick story for today and this is i called it partisan bickering is not the problem and here's my very quick message a candidate who shall remain unnamed running for u.s congress a republican had out a new spiel saying with their slogan which was end partisan bickering you know vote for me and i'll i'll do great things in congress the problem in congress in washington is not partisan bickering. The impeachment is not about partisan bickering. The impeachment is about removing the duly elected president, a campaign the left started before he was sworn in. They have tried on various other issues to bring about the impeachment of him, whether it was because of the alleged, the non-existent Trump-Russia collusion, the obstruction argument, the poll dancer payoff argument, all those. The left has been determined to take this president out 
because he is upsetting the entire ruling class in Washington. The impeachment has nothing to do with the conversation between President Trump and Zelensky or even the broader relation between America and the Ukraine. It's all about taking out President Trump because he is upsetting the apple cart in Washington. But I want to make another, another deeper point about this. So we have this policy group that meets at my house. We have women who we meet once a month. We read all these policy papers. We discuss policy. You know, we get way into it. It's fun. So one of my long-term friends who comes and, you know, she's got all her opinions and she's fun, but really about halfway through it, this most recent time, she said, you know what? I'm just tired of the bickering. I'm tired of the battle. She goes, I'm sorry, Debbie, I'm tired of politics. She said, I want to sit home in my sweatsuit with my slippers on and watch Hallmark Christmas movies. I'm like, okay, you can do that. But I want to just say this about that. I understand that from a distance, Things in Washington seem like it's just partisan bickering. It's just, oh, the Democrats say this, Republicans say this, you know, they bring up this witness, we have that witness. It's far more serious than that. It's far more serious. I'm gonna say two things about it. One is understand that the impeachment is about the determination of the American left to stop the Trump agenda. The Trump agenda draining the swamp, reducing regulation in the federal government, reclaiming the idea of America as a strong, unique, extraordinary nation, which needs to have an enforceable border, getting America out of the Iranian deal, which was a surrender to the Iranian mullahs. President Trump has done historic, important, vital things in redefining and speaking up for America. This is what drives the left nuts. They cannot believe he simply is not subject to, he doesn't surrender to, he doesn't salute to what the left is trying to do. They are out of their minds with the idea that they are not in control. They can't control him, unlike even other Republican presidents who pretty much back down when criticized. He doesn't do that. This drives them crazy. That is what is happening in Washington. We can, and, and the other factor about this, this is what the left is really doing, and the other factor it weaves through everything we talked about today is the relentlessness of the radical left, the tyranny of the radical left, whether it's college campus conversations, whether it is a conversation about whether or not we're gonna, how we're gonna do redistricting, whether we're gonna spend all, force people to spend money litigating idiotic points, whether we're going to argue and protect sanctuary cities. The left is relentless on I could mention 24 issues in a row without even taking a breath, relentless in pushing their mission. They never relent. When you hear people on the right say, well, we gotta work together, we gotta end partisan bickering, understand, it never, that's not how the Democrats hear that. When we say, let's work together, they hear Republicans are surrendering. This is, it's like dealing with a terrorist. I'm sorry to sound so harsh. I have Democrat friends, Democrat family members who are nice people. I'm not talking about the nice little voters and the nice little lady next door or your grandmother. I'm talking about the cabal that runs the Democrat party in this country. Who runs the left? They are relentless, tyrannical seekers of power. It's all that the agenda of the left is about, an issue after issue after issue. Every time people on our side signal, I'm kind of tired of it, you know, can't we just like watch Hallmark movies and stay home? No, the left is never going to go along with any type of agreement, of, of reaching partisan agreement. The left has a mission, which is simply the destruction of the concept of America, a country rooted in the idea that we each have the right to live in liberty because as the declaration recites, we are all created equal and have rights from God. And these are my words, simply because we were created. 
The left hates that idea. The left mindset hates the idea of individual liberty, of the whole concept of a country where you have your right to live in freedom. The left would take over the healthcare system without delay and without exception, and you will have no more healthcare freedom. We're gonna hit healthcare, I think, on Thursday to tell you the latest thing Elizabeth Warren's doing. The left would take over every facet, including regulating speech. They already have in their platform scolding religious freedom, mocking people who say they happen to believe that marriage is one man and one woman, mocking that as a just dismissing the notion of seriousness of thought about religious liberty, that all it really is is just a cover for LGBTQ discrimination. Please understand the left was, is the American left, the anti-American tyrannical left is all about destroying unique, extraordinary greatness of America. That's their mission. And that's why we don't get to get tired. And now, my friends, I want to tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. In our first story, we had tyranny of the offended. When people say they're offended, just say, so what? That's the answer. So what if you're offended? I'm offended. Anecdotes from academia are proliferating. Oh, and you didn't tell you about Dinesh D'Souza, that he sent him off to some small... Anyway, he's getting picked on by the University of Pennsylvania and alleged Ivy League. Dinesh D'Souza must go to a smaller venue due to safety concerns. That's what UPenn said. He couldn't speak in the hall. He has to go speak in some awful place people can't find. Northwestern University journalism students grovel after covering a protest. This is American culture in 2019. Affluence, indulgence, obsession with protecting everyone against being offended by anything leads to a culture that is soft, unserious, intellectually stifled, morally adrift. American patriots must speak up for the return of respect for free speech and for ideological diversity, i.e. competition in the arena of ideas on immigration and elections and why it matters to you. Eric Holders, and they're calling this now, it's Sue Tillis Blue worked in Virginia. The deliberateness, relentlessness, and determination of leftist plans on display. Immigration laws brought large numbers of immigrant voters with no connection whatsoever to America's history, constitution, and idea of government. These make Democrat voters. Turn enough elections with voting rights litigation, cooperation of Democrat-friendly judges, and statehouse control becomes impossible. Implement the leftist agenda, speech control, gun control, socialism, secularism, Statehouse control, engineering, redistricting to keep a lock on future control. Rinse, repeat. This is the Democrat mission. It will never end. Americans must see this in order to counteract and defeat it. On partisan bickering, not the problem, the left and the mainstream media propaganda arm want American voters, especially women, to feel tired of it all, tired of partisan bickering, tired of all the Trump controversy, and then to vote Democrat. The left causes chaos and division, reports on that chaos, and then blames Trump for the chaos they created, all because Trump is upsetting the left's agenda and their ruling class status. On the ballot in 2020, border security, citizenship standards, and preventing the creation of the permanent Democrat majority voting base using immigration policy. The future of free markets and free speech and freedom of religion and more are on the ballot. America's survival is worth the pain of partisan bickering. Get used to the fight and get in it. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Please tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. Please like this Facebook page. You can message me on Facebook once you like the page. You, you can also email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. 
Every article we talked about today is available on my website, americancommunitytalk.org. If you're on YouTube, please, please subscribe to this page. Share it with your friends on Twitter. Love to have you follow me. Share these uh, segments of the, you know, segments of everything I do on this show. I do this show solely and only because out of love of this precious, extraordinary experiment in human liberty called America, I speak up every day to defend it. I hope you will too. And I speak up because America matters. I'll talk to you tomorrow. America, can we talk truth about America? Can you